Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. I am your host, Tyler Cobble, and today we're going to be talking about Amazon's second tower in Nashville. We'll dive into the lumber crisis and, dis and dissect that uh, just a little bit because it needs to be. And then we'll talk about the future of shopping malls. You know, we've been hearing for years how shopping malls are dying. Where are they going? All of that and more on this week's episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. Let's go ahead and dive on in to the Nashville market. So according to the business journals, Oracle has paid $254 million for East Bank Tech Hub land. We actually covered this a few weeks ago. Um, Andy and I did. We were talking about Oracle, the Oracle announcement, how big of a deal that was for Nashville. And it was a preliminary announcement, right? They had pretty much said, hey, this is going to happen, but they had not actually closed on the land yet. So this is the official, hey, it's 100% inked. It is happening. Uh, it, it's, as, as National Business Journal said, it is cemented. Um, and their expansion will likely turn the city upside down. That's very true. It's a lot of jobs. So as we had mentioned, it was 8,500 tech jobs. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, they were definitely six-figure average salaries. I think close to 150,000 a year, actually. They acquired more than 65 acres of East Bank land. Uh, let's see here. Talks about a couple of the law firms that represented both sides of the deal. The sale marks one of the largest transactions in commercial real estate in Nashville history, according to the Nashville Business Journal. Notably, the only three deals that appear larger featured existing buildings, which is pretty crazy to think about. I mean, that $254 million, and the only it's just land. Um, it's a pretty great piece of property, though. Uh, let's see here. Uh, yeah, it's saying the land is largely undeveloped or home to industrial facilities that will need demolition in order for them to move forward with the project. Let's see, the only larger commercial real estate deals were the 222 Office Tower. That's, uh, I believe, where, that's where Bank of America is. The 2012 sale of the mall at Green Hills, which is one of the nicest shopping malls, probably the nicest shopping mall in Tennessee, actually. And Vanderbilt University's sale of property to Vanderbilt University Medical Center uh, when the two split in 2016. So uh, they actually went off and became two separate entities and uh, I guess sold everything off. So uh, pretty interesting. Uh, you know, that's a that's a big deal for Nashville that this has finally gotten inked. Uh, the article goes further into uh, just details that we've already covered here on the show before, talking about the $175 million of public infrastructure that the city's committed, uh, Tennessee incentives for Oracle will exceed $100 million. I mean, pretty pretty remarkable project for Nashville. It's it's amazing how big of a deal this really is. I mean, when Amazon got announced, that was one of the biggest jobs announcements ever. And that was 5000 This is nearly double that and taking up far more land. And selfishly, it's on my favorite side of town. It's on the right side of the river, as I like to say. It is in East Nashville. At least it's on the East Bank. Um, you can argue over whether technically it's East Nashville before you get to the, the interstate or not. Um, but, I mean, it's right at the base of Dickerson Pike where we own a lot of commercial real estate, a bunch of properties, and it's going to help spark a lot of interest, not only in residential, but also commercial on the east side. All right. This also from the Business Journal's Nashville Yards developer secures $128 million loan for second Amazon Tower. 
So the developer of the Nashville Yards just secured funding to build Amazon's second office tower. This has been rumored for a while, and maybe it was rumored or it, it had never been officially confirmed. Uh, but now that they've secured the loan, it's actually happening um, that they will be building the second office tower for Amazon, uh, which is pretty exciting. Uh, so Amazon is building one of the towers in, in mid-gulch, I guess you could call it. Uh, it's, it's not quite traditional gulch, but it's not quite north gulch. Uh, just outside of downtown, between downtown and midtown, phenomen another phenomenal location. Um, let's see. The loan is for $128 million, which is a little bit of a, an indicator of the tower's value, as they say. Um, let's see. In 2019, U.S. Bank loaned Southwest Value Partners, which I believe is the developer on the deal, uh, $176 million for the first tower's construction. Uh, that plus the latest figure likely means the two-building project will cost north of $300 million. Let's see. The first tower, which will house the first waves of Amazon's pledged 5,000 jobs, is scheduled to open this year. The building looks beautiful, by the way. Um, and construction is starting on the second tower, which they expect to finish out in late 2023. Um, let's see here. Amazon signed a lease for the second office tower at the Nashville Yards development back in April. So it officially, I guess it became official then. Metro approved a $57.5 million framing permit for the tower. Pretty amazing to see. Um, yeah, Nashville Yards is an 18-acre development that also includes the Grand Hyatt, Plant Apartments, and an entertainment district developed by Anschutz Entertainment Group and MGM Resorts. Wouldn't that be interesting if we got gambling legalized in Nashville right there, <laughs> right outside of Broadway? Oh, man. You would never it's be coming, able to get Tyler. Yeah, you'd never be able to get natives to go back to that side of town ever again. <laughs> be amazing for tourism, though. Okay, another one from Business Journal's Beeman Land Buyer releases new project plans for Edge Hill Mixed-Use District. So this, uh, if you're not familiar with this site, it sits just outside of uh, the Gulch on, is it 8th South or 12th South? I think it's 12th South. And... Um, it, for years, it was just a, a parking lot where Beeman stored, I believe they were storing their trucks there, but they might have had their fleet of uh, maintenance vehicles there as well. And it finally traded in the last year, and uh, it sits right up to the interstate. I mean, it is a prime piece of property. So exciting to see that something big is going to be happening here. The renderings are beautiful. Let's actually take a look at these. Let's see here. So you can see it's multi-story. They're definitely going for a green, um, kind of a, gosh, like natural tones vibe. You can see there the Nashville skyline in the background. Looks like it's going to have four separate buildings, all greater than, I mean, maybe four plus, five plus stories with a little park in the middle uh, with a giant Edge Hill sign. That's pretty cool. Uh, looks like it might be actually a little amphitheater. Oh, so here we go. Oh, wow, they're way bigger than that. Six stories, ten stories, eight stories, five stories, and seven stories for the buildings. Pretty neat. All right, let's go. How do I go back? Back to article. All right, there we go. So four buildings of ten stories. At, yeah, okay, we already went over that. 600 residential units, 200 hotel rooms. Branding has not yet been announced. 160,000 square feet of rentable office space. 
and 35,000 square feet of rentable retail space. Um, looks like the development team also gathered feedback from the community and um, are adding some new amenities because of that. They're changing the existing 12th Avenue Bridge sidewalk to incorporate a raised boardwalk. That's actually really cool. Uh, rooftop community hall and amenity deck overlooking the development. Collaborative workspace and flexible areas for retail and food startups. Playground feature. Hey, they took that one out of our book. Playground featuring slabs of limestone, on-site sidewalks designed to accommodate an outdoor art walk. Uh, that's pretty cool. Um, let's see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Beeman uh, put four prime Midtown properties on the market back in January. Hawkins Street property uh, was under contract at the time. The parcels marked some of the most coveted land in Music City's booming real estate market. Um yeah, it was uh, pretty interesting. So Beeman Automotive is one of the biggest Toyota dealerships uh, in the country, actually. And he'd been sitting on some very, some prime land for years um, there in Midtown. So it, exciting to see that start to get turned over and, and some things happening in downtown Nashville. And the common thread there, Tyler, is that both with the East Bank land and that Beeman land together, you know, it's just these parcels of land that kind of just been sitting around for the last 20, 30, 40, all of Nashville's history. And now we're really starting to see the transformation of all of these part parcels come together. And I mean, what Nashville will look like five years from now, 10 years from now versus what it is today, it's going to be radically different, just like it was different 10 years ago. And that's why it's exciting to be investing and developing and being a part of Nashville's really prime time for growth right now. Oh yeah. Oh, it's, it's night and day. I mean, it's, it's amazing to get to watch this and you're right. Like just in the next five years, the city's going to be unrecognizable. If you look at the skyline now, I mean, half of the skyline wasn't there five years ago, which is pretty remarkable to think about. All right, let's move on to market watch this week. We are taking a pretty interesting, uh, turn on market watch here. Um, it's not a city that I would expect, probably not one that you would expect either, but it's worth talking about. So let's see here. Of course, we are talking about Indianapolis. Um, so Indianapolis is a pretty interesting city. Let's, let's look at the, this is according to the Urban Land Institute's Emerging Trends in Real Estate, as we read every week. Um, it is number 21 in terms of overall real estate prospects. Now, everything that we've been talking about has been largely in the top, I don't know, 10 or 15. Uh, 21 is nothing to shy away from. I mean, look at how many other cities are on this list. There's 80 other cities on this list. And still, how many cities are there in, uh, in the United States? So uh, still pretty impressive. Let's see where they are. They're number 36 in terms of home building prospects. So still fairly strong. Uh, they are considered one of the backbone markets, which are the determined competitors. Uh, Indianapolis gets looped in with Birmingham, Kansas City, Louisville, Oklahoma City. Those are four strong cities. They are ranked 3.31 out of five for a local market perspective on investor demand. So definitely above average, uh, but not totally outstanding. Uh, well, now let's dive into why Indianapolis is a, is a market that would probably be worth looking at. So um, it's one of the top housing markets to watch in 2021, according to Forbes. Uh, this is an article by Roofstock.com. Uh, 
Um, don't expect that to be a secret for much longer. I mean, anywhere that's going to have a decent housing market is going to be tough to keep up with now, just because, I mean, you look at cities like Nashville, Austin, it's impossible to buy anything. Um, you're one of 30 offers everywhere you go. Uh, remote real estate investors are putting Indianapolis at the top of their list of markets where property is still affordable and potential returns are higher. I mean, that makes sense. If you can buy property relatively affordably, you'll probably be able to make a decent return on it without having to worry about the appreciation. It is ideally uh, located and brimming with good jobs, entertainment, and friendly people. Um, so, And it blends the small town Midwestern charm with the big city buzz. Um, and it's got some cash flowing properties, high ceiling for expansion. Real estate forecasters praise its years of steady growth and high rental demand. The Midwest is very interesting to me because it's never... Nothing in the Midwest has ever just skyrocketed and gone out of control, but nothing has ever, you know, really dive bombed. I mean, you know, I guess Detroit, maybe take Detroit out of that, right? But, I mean, it's it's a good, solid market. A lot of companies will actually go test their concepts in the Midwest uh, to see you know, how they think the rest of the country would actually react to it. Let's see, population growth. Uh, forecast to be the state's primary source of population growth over the next 30 years. Um, let's see. The population of the 11 county in the Indianapolis region is predicted to grow by 26% in the coming decades. Currently home to over 876,000 people in the city and 2 million in the metro area. Uh, their population grew one, by 1%, over 1% last year alone. Um, interesting. Yeah, tw- it's projected to grow 26% by the next 30 years. Median age of Indianapolis is 36.6 years old, with 41% of the population between the ages of 20 and 49. That's pretty strong. That's a good younger population. Per capita income in the city is 35000 and household income is 62000 All right, let's see about the job market. GDP is $126 billion. Grew by more than 14% over the last 10 years. That's pretty strong. Employment growth is 1.7% year over year with a metro area home to over 1 million employees. Um, Unemployment rate currently 4.9%. That's typically below the national average. I don't know how the past year has affected that, but that's pretty low. Let's see. Key industry sectors. Aerospace and aviation, advanced manufacturing, agriculture, cybersecurity, life sciences, logistics, and transportation. I mean, if you're looking for a city that is going to have strong job prospects over the next 20 years, I mean, listen to everything that we just said there. I mean, all of those are going to continue to grow significantly. Um, at least we feel they will. All right, the real estate market. It's been flying off the shelf. Nearly two-thirds of the houses listed for sale going under contract with just two weeks after hitting the market. Single-family home sale prices have increased 14% year over year. Uh, Let's see. I don't ever listen to the Zillow Home Value Index. Home values in Indianapolis increased by 10.9% last year and are projected to grow by another 10.7% during the next 12 months. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of growth. That's... I mean, you're getting 10% appreciation even assuming you don't cash flow, right? I mean, that's a pretty good return on your investment. Median sales price of a single-family home in Indianapolis is 224000 Wow. Based on the most recent report from MyBor. That's really, I mean, that's, I mean, Nashville's 350000 You're paying 50% more to be in Nashville. Um, 
I mean, obviously, I would imagine Nashville is going to rent for a little bit higher. But, I mean, hey, at $224,000 median, it doesn't take a whole lot to make that property cash flow. Average days on market is 31. Sale to list price ratio is 98.6%. Uh, so you're selling for almost full asking price. Interesting. So that's pretty cool. It's a strong renter's market. It's one of the top real estate markets attracting out-of-state investors. Renter-occupied households in Indianapolis account for less than half of the occupied housing units, meaning there's still plenty of potential growth left for rental real estate in Indy. Median rent is just under $1,300 a month for a three-bedroom home. Can you imagine that? Median rent, $1,300 a month for a three-bedroom I mean, you can get, that's like the cost of a one-bedroom in Nashville. Rents have increased by 17% year over year. Um, over the past three years, average rents in Indianapolis have grown by 30%. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Millennials and Gen Z account for 41% of the population, which is a key demographic group. Uh, for rental property investors. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Let's go to the quality of life. Cost of living in Indy is 12% lower than Atlanta and 17% less than Dallas, Texas. In fact, the cost of living in Indianapolis is 2% below the entire national average, according to Forbes. Overall receives A- grade from Niche.com with strong ratings for family living, diversity, housing, and nightlife. It's also ranked one of the top 50 best cities to buy a house. It's pretty cool. All right, let's move on. Uh, this is an article from Fool.com, 2021 Indianapolis real estate marketing market investing forecast. Let's see what else they have to say. State's most densely populated city. Uh, according to 2019 estimates from the U.S. Census Bureau, it's over 886,000, which makes it the 17th most populous city in the United States. I mean, that's a pretty good uh, metric to keep an eye on, especially as population starts to shift. I would imagine, you know, over the next five years, we'll see a pretty big shift uh, in where the population is just because, one, people can do it. But now COVID sparked a lot of people to, to leave wherever they were. State of the market. Home prices are rising but remain fairly affordable. Uh, they're saying here median price 225 National average is 353. So I guess Nashville is about right on with the average. So, yeah, that's, up, that's again, 50% more. Um, that's a good price. Rents are up, but so are rental vacancies. Rental vacancies are up in Indianapolis almost 11% this year. Median rent price in the city has risen 8.5% and is now just under 1300 Mortgage delinquencies are increasing, but the foreclosure rate is down. That's good. So delinquencies have increased 1.1% over last year, likely due to the spike in unemployment and the pandemic. That's, I mean, honestly, all things considered for COVID, that's not a whole lot. Um, unemployment trends, they peaked at 12.8% in April of 2020, still well below the national average, and has dropped to just 4.5% in the last few months. I mean, that's great. They, they spiked back down fast. Uh, median price, rental, we kind of talked about all this. Housing supply indicators. <laughs> There's no way to sugarcoat the fact that the housing supply in Indianapolis is at crisis level lows. I mean, find me, find one city that <laughs> you can't say that about right now. I was reading an article the other day. Manhattan real estate values are down 20% year over year. 
just remarkable to think about. Down 20%. We keep talking about how amazing all of these other cities are, and you forget that there are cities like you know, Manhattan that are struggling. With just 0.6 months of housing inventory, so they've got like three weeks, not even three weeks, of housing inventory available as of March 2021, their supply is much lower than in other areas of the country where the national average is 1.09 months. These lows indicate that strong offers are a must for anyone who wants to invest. You will almost undoubtedly face a barrage of competition. Yes, you will. Goes further into rental vacancies. We've covered that a little bit. Architectural billings. Um, interesting. Uh, it's typically used as an indicator of non-residential construction activity. So, commercial. Um, let's see. At, at its low point in April 2020, the Midwest measured 31.2 on this scale compared to a national measure of 21.5. Since then, the number has risen to a solid 56.5, an increase of 12.3% in the last year. So that's that's good. If you're not familiar with those numbers, which I'm not really, the higher the number, the better. Construction indicators. Let's see here. Been increasing since 2016 and jumped 7% from 2020. Number of construction jobs better tells a story. They actually have increased on a year-over-year basis with almost 58,000 current jobs. This metric is up 4,300 year over year. So let's see, single family detached permits, multifamily detached permits. I mean, they're just talking about all the different, you know, kind of activity um, signals that you have in the market. I, I mean, Indy seems like a pretty interesting town if you're looking to start investing in a more affordable market. If you would like to start doing something more remotely, like maybe you don't live in, in, in Indianapolis and it's too expensive to invest where you are, may, may want to start looking at Indianapolis. All right, let's dive into the future of CRE. So like I said, we're going to dive into lumber prices and the uh, absolute madness that has been going on there. So if you're not familiar with what has been going on, COVID spiked uh, or caused shutdowns in the lumber manufacturing facilities, which meant that we weren't producing lumber. And then this demand came roaring back and the demand never slowed down. So now what we have is a massive lumber shortage, which has actually caused lumber prices to increase 300, over 300%, close to 350%, I believe, in the last year alone. Um, which is absolutely remarkable. So it's it's forced contractors to start either putting jobs on hold or to start exploring alternative construction methods. Um, I mean, it's saying here builders can get lumber if they wait and are willing to pay through the nose. Construction is more expensive. That is absolutely true. Um, it looks like lumber prices are triple what they were in April 2020, increasing average single-family home construction by nearly $36,000. That's a lot. I mean, when you're talking about a median home price in the country of $335,000, that's a 10% increase in housing prices just because of lumber. That's tough in CRE as single-family rentals and build-to-rent have become such big sectors. Yeah, that's tough. The NAHB has pointed to lumber tariff problems as one issue. The U.S. is a larger producer of lumber, but still imports. Canada is this country's largest trading partner for softwood lumber, but as the NHAB says, there is currently no trade agreement in place. And while the United States reduced tariffs on Canadian softwood lumber imports to around 9% in December 2020, tariffs still add to the overall cost for home builders. 
Uh, I mean, I just don't understand why tariffs <laughs> even make sense. And I mean, now, right? That needs to it should probably get dropped. But I mean, just with you know, we're not willing to pay nine percent or twenty percent in tariffs, uh, and so we're going to let lumber prices triple. Another factor is falling supply from Canada as forest industry consulting firm Wood Resources International reports, despite record high lumber prices in the U.S. in 2020, Canadian lumber shipments to its southern neighbor have fallen for the fourth consecutive year. A reduction in the annual allowable cut in the province of British Columbia has reduced production volumes in that region by over a third in just five years. So again, you know, we talked about when we first started diving into this article, this is, by the way, this is from Globe Street. I forgot to say that. Um, when we first started talking about this article, it was, you know, alternative construction methods. That, I mean, when you look at that, we have a, a lumber crisis that was really sparked by a shortage in, in labor. And now production's being decreased. Why would lumber prices start to go down? I mean, if you, if you start logically looking at this, do you really think that lumber pricing is going to go down? I don't see why it would. We have less supply and high demand. I mean, look, I didn't major in economics. I took uh, the AP test once back in high school and passed it. But, you know, what I do remember is that with high demand and low supply comes high prices. <laughs> I mean, people want more things, not many things. Price go up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People want thing, not much thing. Thing of price go up. Love it. I mean, it's true. Like, I, I just so again, alternative construction methods need to be at the forefront of everyone's minds, right? Like, you you can't. Construction is a very interesting industry because if we look at it critically, how much has it really changed in the last few hundred years? or last thousand years, right? Like we're still using nails. We're still <laughs> using trees. It's like, man, these are still very rudimentary building forms. And I mean, we're 3D printing organs in labs. Like I feel like it's about time that we get, we, we step everything up in the construction industry. And, it, and I think that this is going to have a massive impact and is really going to ignite that revolution in construction materials and, and, and construction in general. Anyway, that's absolutely. me going off on absolutely, a tangent. Tyler. No, Tyler. I mean, I think it's <laughs> this is a really important topic to to bring up for everyone watching on the show. It's the reason why we are now on on some of our projects looking at alternative construction methods because we want to be, you know, at the cutting edge and knowing what's going on in the future. If, you know, traditionally these alternative methods, you know, we're at a price premium to a normal home, but now a normal home costs 36 grand more, there's no more price premium. That price premium is essentially wiped away. Why wouldn't you look at a better construction material? I'm here in you know, Puerto Rico right now. Every house here is built with concrete. There's not a single house here built with lumber. You know, why, why don't we have more houses built with concrete? You know, if you go look at how people, how people build houses in Europe, they build way, way, way bigger walls than we do and use lots of different stone and mortar and all that kind of stuff. A lot of them don't use wood either. Really, only America is the only country in the world. It's hard to think about. It's weird to think about that America is essentially the only country in the world that uses so much wood to build its houses. Uh, and it's because we're blessed with a lot of forests, but we're not cutting down as many trees anymore, you know, and it's becoming harder and harder supply is getting cut in Canada and the U.S. South everywhere. 
You know, it's just, it's not going to be something as sustainable going forward if we don't figure out how to put up new houses in different ways. Exactly. I mean, with the rate of construction now, I mean, we're, we can't build enough homes to house everybody. Right. And so it's like the demand for lumber is not going to go down at all. And so again, high demand, low supply. I mean, in, in this article, they're saying a, a balance between supply and demand could take 12 to 24 months. I have a hard time seeing balance come back until it, the, like alternative construction methods become so popular that there's just less demand overall for that kind of product. Um, because it's just, I mean, again, they're not producing as much. They say that multiple times in this article. Best way to address U.S. lumber shortages is to ensure a healthy domestic forest product supply chain from forest land owners to mills to end users. Problem with that, <laughs> there's a glaring problem with that. One, you have to have the people that are willing to go out there and cut it up and ship it and all that kind of stuff. But two, how long does it take to grow a tree to a point where you can <laughs> fell it and turn it into two by fours? It takes a little while, right? Whereas, you know, what I love about concrete, man, you just go out and you dig up a bunch of rock and crush it. And then, I mean, it's a, a little more complicated than that, but like not much. We can go out there and do that today. Um, and you can do the same thing with dirt and other construction materials. So, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of how I feel about that. I think, I think we're going to see, a, a, a pretty dramatic shift over the next 10 years into alternative construction methods. You heard it here first. Um, all right, this next one is also from Globe Street. It's another round of adaptation for retailers. The pandemic has pushed retailers into the next phase of evolution, including new trends in omni-channel and in-store experiences. Pretty interesting. So over the last decade, the retail industry has experienced tremendous change. Yes, it has. We talk about that here all the time. The popularity of online shopping forced retailers to adapt by adopting new in-store experiences and omni-channel platforms. You've heard all of that before. Let's talk about how online and in-store shopping are starting to collide. You've probably seen some of those Amazon stores, right? Where you can walk in and like just grab stuff and go. You don't even have to check out or whatever. It just automatically knows that you are the one that bought it. Pretty crazy. Um, so before the pandemic, Omnichannel was rapidly evolving and many retailers had developed a robust technology infrastructure to support online shopping. However, the digital segment of the business had little collaboration with the in-store experience and that is changing. Let's see. Businesses broaden the definition of omni-channel to include additional digital channels like marketplaces. Why is there, why is there a hyphen there? Is that supposed to be? <laughs> Hopefully that's just not just some random word that I just somehow don't know. Let's assume that says marketplaces, social media sites, and last mile delivery partners. Let's see. Over the last year, in-store fulfillment of online sales, in-store delivery services for phone and online purchases, and the seamless acceptance of online returns – has been an early glimpse into how physical retail and online retail are colliding. Customer demand is key. Once the pandemic hit, consumers required a new shopping experience. I mean, that's true. Like everybody's habits completely shifted overnight because we didn't really have a choice. Um, so it is very dependent on customer adaptation and adoption of what you're trying to do. 
so operating a physical store as both a distribution center and customer servicing center has triggered supply chain issues. So think about that. That's like if Target is converting, you know, a tenth of its retail locations into also serving as distribution um, for what their online sales, right? Walmart is doing a lot of that. Best Buy pivot. Best Buy was one of the first to pivot and start doing that, uh, and it honestly saved their brand. Um, this more holistic view of the omni-channel has presented retailers with some difficulties in terms of inventory management and control over their brand and operations, especially in partnering with third-party marketplaces, last-mile delivery platforms, and social media sites. As this continues to evolve, it will be critical for retailers to map out each touchpoint to clarify purpose and interaction between each channel. Yeah, that's very that's very important to note. Let's see. Trend is only going to gain momentum. I mean, honestly, it's the only way that these retailers can remotely compete with Amazon because they have to be able to give you same-day pickup or same-day delivery, and they've already got all of these locations across the country. Why not go ahead and use them for that? Uh, let's see. Giving consumers the ability to immediately purchase an event off the videos they're watching on social channels is a growing trend, especially as we crave to consume more and more video content. Hey, look at that. People are craving video content. What are we doing here for you guys? <laughs> Every week, we're creating video content on commercial real estate. In addition, consumer habits have changed during the pandemic, not only in terms of requiring convenience and the seamless transition between in-store and online, the pandemic has also renewed support for small and local businesses. We've been saying this for a while. I mean, one, we've always been big on small business, local business, but if you want to have a successful commercial real estate investing business, focusing locally is a great way to go. You get into the neighborhoods, you focus on the types of businesses that serve everyday consumer needs um, that cannot be replaced by an Amazon. So, you know, I'm big on neighborhood retail shopping centers, right? And a lot of people are scared of retail. But no, neighborhood retail shopping centers are totally different. That's the dry cleaners, the nail salon, the the local bar, right? That your, your neighborhood's going to frequent every day, every week, if not every day. Um, so those types of businesses will continue to do well. Here they're talking about the new in-store experience. I mean, again, everybody's trying to figure out how to create these experiences to, to fight Amazon, really. I mean, it's Amazon is the 800-pound gorilla. Let's see here. I do think a certain amount of in-store pickup and delivery will be here to stay, but I think at some point we're going to reach a more natural equilibrium as things become safer on the public health side. They're talking about here how there was a drop in physical shopping during the pandemic, of course. Finding that balance will hinge on a progressive and thoughtful retail experience. Um, experiential retail has already become a cornerstone of successful shops prior to the pandemic, but the concept is increasingly important for survival. Yeah. I mean, you, if you can't, I mean, it's, it's the only way to compete, right? I mean, Amazon's going to compete in terms of convenience. They'll, they will beat you in terms of probably pricing, um, and selection. They just, they just can. So what can these retailers provide that an Amazon never could? Um, technology will play a crucial role in delivering this experience. Retailers know their customers better than ever due to their online habits for better or, for, or worse, uh, we'll continue to see more and more touchless and contactless integration, including integrating chips into products for scanning available inventory, 
other accessories to purchase with the product and payment itself. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the article continues to go on. Let's see here. The Mayfair collection is HSA's most recent example. The 400,000-square-foot property includes dual anchors, Whole Foods Market, and Nordstrom Rack, along with co-working and corporate office space, a 146-room Hilton Homewood Suites, and Synergy, a 269-unit luxury rental community. During the pandemic, the property attracted PetSmart, which signed a 15,600-square-foot lease, signaling both the strength of the asset as well as the strength of the pet store market through the pandemic. Um, interesting. So... Okay, so the, basically what they're talking about is how developers are also providing a very similar experience um, to a whole development, as one might expect, just from a retailer, right? So how can developers attract people to come shop it? You know, like, yeah, hey, it's cool that you've got Nordstrom Rack, uh, but, you know, how can you attract, you know, a PetSmart and a Whole Foods and really drive traffic to that market and then create this new, unique experience, that's why mixed use, in my opinion, is so, so critical moving forward. Uh, this article goes on and on and on about how retail is going to recover. It's just shifting. Uh, all, of course, all of these links are in uh, the description below if you really want to dive into these articles and read them further. Uh, but that's pretty much all the color that I could probably add to that. This next article is from BizNow. Lack of land has industrial developers looking to take over Florida's golf courses, lakes, and the Everglades. That probably doesn't sound controversial at all. Let's see here. We're all fighting over the same pieces of dirt, says Rodriguez, who is a uh, vice president for Duke Realty. Industrial is the darling of the real estate market right now. It is. I mean, look, industrial has never been sexy, but it has become a very sexy investment. Um it's just stable and is in high demand. New players are moving in to compete with the five or so firms that have controlled the market for decades. So instead of maybe five to ten competitors, it's up to 20 vying for the same little spots peppered all over the Tri-County area. And that's got to be incredibly frustrating for the more established guys because when you have smaller guys coming into the market, they're often willing to take lower margins and uh, riskier projects so they can afford to pay more, which means it's tougher to get deals done. Land inventory is evaporating rapidly, and parcels that can accommodate new projects often have costly environmental problems. Industrial developers have taken over former golf courses and lumber yards and even filled in lakes. On top of that, industrial developers are competing for land against developers of retail and residential projects who can command higher rates per square foot for completed projects. We've seen that a lot in Nashville. So, there, the downtown core of Nashville was very industrial. And in fact, some parts of it still are. We were talking earlier about how Oracle is actually taking over a pretty big industrial part of Nashville. And it's right downtown. Well, it's because that used to be a very undesirable part of the city to live in. And now that has completely changed, right? I mean, downtown Nashville is now the most desirable uh, part of this or close to the most desirable place to live and work. And so, you know, retailers, multifamily developers, uh, they can all afford to pay way more than these industrial guys can because if you're building a 20-story tower, I mean, it. how would a two-story or even a single-story industrial development compete with that? It can't. So we have a lot of that going on. Um, let's see. It's not just Class A. It's down to Class C property, and that's made it so much more difficult to find these. 
Yeah, so I mean, look, all over the country, industrial is, is far more popular, and it's still very difficult to find land to do. Um, let's see here. Easton Group, founder at Easton, whose firm owns and operates nearly 6 million square feet of industrial real estate in South Florida, predicted that proposed policy changes in Washington would tighten development opportunities. I think the challenge with these new tax laws is going to be severe because if capital gains go up to 44% and they eliminate the step-up in basis, it's more economic for sellers to turn to refinancing than it is to be a seller. I think that's going to continue. Every time you go to your accountant and say, should I sell this building for $10 million? He shows you the number and you say you can re- refinance it for $6 million and come out with more money. That's true. I mean, that that well, that could take us on to a whole other tangent, which, Andy, we should definitely cover what the impact of the absence of the 1031 exchange or a change in capital gains um, could do uh, to investments. Because, look, if, if that does yeah. happen – Property owners will stop selling property, which will cause a lot of issues in the market. It'll cause a lot of issues. Um, anyway, that wasn't the whole point of this article, but that was interesting that they brought that point up. So, yeah, I mean, look, they're, they're, industrial developers are, are having to get creative. It used to be they were spoiled and they could take large tracts of land 20 miles outside of the city, off the interstate, and it was fine. Well, those pieces are gone now. Um, so it's... Uh, it's getting tougher and tougher. We've got a, a question from that awesome trucker. Um, so what about purchasing a fourplex in Indiana as a rental property with the millennial and Gen Z group and the average rental cost being up in the city, but with the rental vacancies being up as well? Yeah, oh, here's kind of a second add on to it. Will it hurt me more in the long run if I can't always keep my property filled at all times? Also, I want to keep a, a substantial amount of cash flow coming in. Um, no, I, well, look, I think that's a great question. I mean, look, a fourplex in Indiana as a rental property, if you're able to find a good deal, that's great. I'm, I'm all for multi-tenant scenarios, whether that's two or more units or whether that's 200 or more units. Because you're diversifying your risk, and therefore, it's just a better investment, right? And the way that I look at it, quadplexes, fourplexes, those will always be in high demand uh, from investors, right? Because it's just a rare product. Uh, from what I've seen, it's not, they're not really built anymore because it's not really, really cost-effective to go out and build them anymore. So if you've got one, it's it's not a trophy asset, but it's kind of a trophy asset. So, I mean, I would say, look, yeah, fourplex in Indiana, especially if you're in kind of an up-and-coming or a hit part of town, probably a pretty good investment. Um, will it hurt you more in the long run if you can't always keep it filled at all times? No. I mean, I, I don't think that that's too big of a deal. Of course, you don't want it to, to you know, you don't want to keep a room vacant for too long, right? Like, you'll want to drop your rent pretty quickly in order to get it filled, especially if you're investing for cash flow. But what I would say is don't drop it too low because that will impact the value of the property because it's an investment property now. And it really depends on what that cash flow coming in is. Uh, Andy, what are your thoughts on that? You're, you're big into, into that kind of stuff. Yeah, believe it or not, I actually just bought a fourplex for me to live in and rent out the other three units. So because of that exact reason, Fourplexes are always going to be in very, very high demand 
just because of financing. One of the things you have to think about when you're investing in real estate is the access of capital. Because you can get loans on up to a four unit building with just your regular type of mortgage loan, that's the one that the majority of people have access to and know about and understand. So that's going to have always going to be an inherent amount of demand of people doing exactly what I'm doing, right? Where they buy it, they move into one unit, they rent out the other three units, right? That's what is going, that's going to be happening pretty much until the end of time, as long as these 30 year mortgages exist. So that's going to be a really great way to ensure that demand for your product and therefore the value of your investment stays high. And in the meantime, I think buying in a market like Indianapolis, some of these lower cost markets, you can buy per door much, much cheaper than you can even in Nashville, right? And per door just means per each rentable unit. And one of the things to understand about rental property is that the price can be really low, but there's only so far the rent can fall. For example, I can rent, I can buy a unit per door in Nashville, maybe for $150,000, but depending on part of the city, it might only rent for $1,000. Whereas I may be able to buy per door in Indianapolis for $75,000, but maybe my rent is closer to like $700 because, you know, it's just, there's a certain floor to rent that it's, it's never going to be below like four or $500 at that point. It's almost free. So uh, it, it's, that's just one of the things to consider about as well. Investing in rental property in lower priced markets is usually going to give you better returns than investing in rental properties in higher priced markets because of that discrepancy. Yep, that's very true. And it makes a big difference, right? I mean, especially if you're looking for cash flow, um, it could be easier to keep it filled up when you're at lower price points. And, you know, again, it, it depends completely on, on, on the city, though. But that awesome trucker, that was an awesome question. All right, let's move into PE deal dive. So true American <laughs> Andy's over here laughing because of that. Hey, I had to. Come on. Uh, <laughs> this is from Globe Street. Uh, true American multifamily buys 1,000 apartment units for $196 million. That's a hell of a deal, I think. Maybe I'm crazy, but uh, the firm has expanded its portfolio in Phoenix and Nashville with the purchase of two garden-style apartments and separate transactions. Uh, that awesome trucker saying thank you. Absolutely. Anytime. Appreciate the question. Uh, Los Angeles-based True America Multifamily has expanded its footprint uh, with two uh, separate transactions for $196 million. The two properties total nearly 1,000 units. Let's see. They got the Urban, which is a 435-unit apartment complex in Phoenix, uh, which brings their Arizona portfolio to 3,000 units. Uh, let's see. Nashville, they bought Vieira Cool Springs, a 468-unit property built in 1987. That's crazy. I didn't realize that Cool Springs had any multifamily built in 1987. This is the firm's second acquisition in the market. They bought South Point at Stones River, a 410-unit community in Hermitage, uh, which it acquired for $100 million. So these guys like to buy very small properties, clearly. Uh, in keeping with its standard value-add business strategy, True American Multifamily plans to make targeted improvements to both properties while maintaining attainable rental rates for the markets. Cool. 
Phoenix and Nashville have been among the top growth markets during the pandemic. Both cities have seen an influx of population and job growth. Phoenix has grown tremendously. Uh, Commercial search, the city is ranked sixth uh, in the nation for multifamily sales over the last decade. Um, Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Nashville, similar story. New report summarizing the multifamily investment forecast for Marcus and Millichap lists Nashville as well as Phoenix. Among the top markets benefiting from what it calls the in-migration momentum. That is basically everybody that has decided to leave big cities because of COVID. Other investors are also following the trend. Brickstone Partners acquired two apartment communities, totaling 288 units adjacent to Colorado State University. They purchased them for $81 million. In Phoenix, multifamily developer Zom Living entered the Phoenix market, planning a $500 million investment and to build more than 1,600 units in North Phoenix. I mean, big news, right? Like, look, demand is still there for multifamily. It's not going anywhere. Um, I mean, 1,000 units for $196 million. What is that a door, Andy? Did you calculate that? I mean, hell, I could do it real quick. But About 200 grand. I mean, that's a good number. Yeah, that's right. I guess I should have just done that. I mean, almost $200,000. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, I swear I'm good at math. Um, it's been a long day. We, I mean, how we record these at 530. So come on, well, <laughs> give me a little bit of a break. Yeah, so $200,000 a door. Um, you know, the average, the average in Nashville is below that, I think, isn't it? Like 150 to 175 a door? I don't know. It costs... Not for Class A. Class A is trading about that much now. Yeah, but what's the average? I know Class A is definitely above that. I mean, we've got stuff that's three hundred thousand plus a door, which is wild. Man, I remember when we when we sold like there was an apartment complex that broke a record for two hundred eighty thousand a door, and it was like you know, that was only four years ago, and it was such a big deal. All right, moving on. Um, this one is from CNBC: a hint of what's to come for dying malls. Phoenix mall owner sells out as property is rezoned for other uses. This needs to happen. Mall owner. Mace Reich uh, announced Thursday it sold a majority stake in Paradise Valley Mall in Phoenix to a mixed-use real estate developer. The 92-acre site has been rezoned to create a new community with homes and offices. Malls packed full of clothing and other retail shops are looking for new life. That's like an understatement. Um, Corsite Research has estimated that 25% of America's roughly 1,000 malls will close by 2025. Let's go buy them all. Uh, the future of the suburban shopping mall could look something like a mini community with far fewer places to shop. Of course, I said this earlier, mixed use is the future. You want your shoppers and your consumers on site because they will help. It just, it, one, they will, they will patron all of these businesses. But two, it just creates a cool atmosphere and a cool community that people want to live and work and you know, operate a business in. So. Let's see, sold the majority stake for $100 million. They're doing a JV with Red Development. Partners will convert the 92-acre site into a community with homes, offices, and a grocery store. Very similar to what happened at One Bellevue Place in Nashville, if you are familiar with that development. The 1970s-era Paradise Valley Mall has been rezoned to allow the sprawling plot of land to include high-end grocery options, restaurants, 3.25 million square feet of residential space, office buildings, and some retail shops. Sounds pretty cool to me. I mean, again, you know, there's uh, here it is. 
as more consumers buy online and skip trips to dated department stores and archaic food courts. That is, uh, that's a pretty, <laughs> pretty brutal sentence right there. That's incredibly accurate, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's so outdated. I feel like malls got lazy and we're sitting on their laurels and kind of deserve what's coming to them. If you think about it too, how much of that land at shopping malls is totally wasted? You've got a ridiculous amount of parking and there's a significant portion of the day that none of that parking is ever used, right? So it only makes sense to just build up. Like if you're going to look at a mall and you want to be lazy about it, build vertically three or four stories and create residential, even two stories. Add residential and now you've completely changed the environment that you've got there. Retailers will pay so much more just to be surrounded by their customers, right? America's malls have reached the end of their useful life. Communities across the U.S. have turned their backs on what was once their center. Yeah, they're not cool. They're not cool anymore. Um, these properties often occupy real estate that would be best repurposed to better serve the community. It's so true. I mean, it's, they're, just, they're taking up significant swaths of land, and um, it's time for that to go. So there you have it. Shopping malls are changing. They will become mixed-use uh, town centers. They deserve to become mixed-use town centers. There you go. All right, moving into prop tech. Let's see what is going on in the world of commercial real estate technology. This is from BizNow. Developers use building information modeling to beat back construction costs and bridge the visual divide. Fly-through videos, virtual reality tours of proposed projects, and data-filled 3D digital models of buildings might seem like flashy afterthoughts for a project. But members of the development community are using these tools and others for very practical reasons. We do these on every single one of our projects because it just, it, one, it helps us visualize things better. It helps us, you know, hey, what, what was actually, do you remember what was to the right? Like when you walked in the door, it, you know, it helps to understand exactly how everything's laid out. But two, the better that your end consumer can understand what is going on there, the more successful the project, project will be. The faster it'll lease up, the better of a price you'll probably get. I mean, it just makes sense. Architects, engineers, and general contractors have been talking about virtual design and construction for several years, uh, but we feel like we've somehow left the developer community out, and you guys are the ones that stand to benefit the most. We are also the ones that are going to actually implement this. <laughs> um, so it's talking about BIM, which is a uh, building information modeling. Uh, BIM is a process that involves making digital representations of a building or structure that contains not only physical information about the building, but also data points about the features of the building or structure. So think about, uh, we have a client, uh, Rabbit Hole VR in Nashville. This is one thing that they were working on. You put on these virtual reality headsets and you can like walk through digital renderings of these buildings but long before they're built and you can actually walk up and and instead of saying like hey the, the ceilings here are 12 feet you could also see like really cool facts like i mean they'll they'll be able to program it however they want in order to help tell a story um let's see there's value to this technology beyond the construction team because of course it helps with construction it helps with design it helps with the pitch the physical representation of a project can come in handy when developers are trying to sell their project to the city or to the neighborhood. Models or virtual or augmented reality were mentioned as ways to accomplish bridging the gap between those involved in the development process and those on the outside looking in. So 
one of the biggest issues that developers face when they are pitching their projects is getting the neighborhood to fully understand what is actually happening. And it doesn't matter how good of a storyteller you are. There are some people that just won't ever get it because they can't see it. And that more often than not is actually why they are a NIMBY. In my opinion, it's not because they are just, Hey, absolutely not. We won't take anything ever in our backyards. It's because they genuinely don't understand what's going on. And so of course they're just going to naturally oppose it. But if you have the ability to come in and show a 3d rendering and show exactly how the property will operate and how it's going to look and, and all of that kind of, you know, to that level of detail, your ability to get the neighborhood on board, to get your council member or local politicians on board, it, it probably increases tenfold, right? I mean, it made that up. Like, you know, it has to increase significantly. Not here, here it is. Not everyone knows how to read a set of drawings. They just don't. It's like, I mean, look, we do this every day for a living. I see every day... You know, people who you would think who also do this every day should know exactly how something's going to turn out and they just cannot visualize it. Some people's brains just don't work that way. Models can be used beyond the construction phase or later in the life of the building. Um, I mean, it's, it's really cool. We do 3D tours on all of our properties. One, it allows us to see, okay, what did this space look like when the tenant first took it? But also... It helps us pitch that space to businesses that are outside of the city or out of the state that won't be able to just come in and take a tour. They can actually kind of go through and look at every aspect of these spaces, which is really neat. Um, they can kind of go ahead and weed themselves out if, it, if it's not a fit or say, absolutely, this looks great. Let's go tour that, which makes my job easier, right? Because the more information that we as brokers or that my brokerage team can give to potential clients the more it's either a yes or no decision and we don't have to go spend the time on a property tour and take time to go to the, you know what I mean? It just it makes everything so much easier. BIM can be used on any project, large or small, uh, but it still is a cost issue. I mean, of course, uh, for many smaller projects, like a 200-unit apartment building, I like that they're throwing 200-unit apartment buildings in here as a smaller project. It may not make financial sense to accumulate all the building data and build a digital model. Uh, especially with costs such as lumber hitting new heights, the decision to adopt new technology will always come down to the numbers. Uh, I mean, the good thing is, look, I mean, most of this you can actually do at a relatively, I don't know why they're saying it, it may not make sense for a 200 unit apartment building. Um, I mean, I would imagine for commercial buildings, it's probably a little more important for you to have something like this than multifamily. Cause I mean, look, residential people are just not going to sign. I, I have a hard time seeing them signing leases, when there's nothing really to go tour, but you know, that's just me. So there you have it. Building modeling, uh, building information modeling, 3D models, digital models could be uh, something really interesting to watch out for over the next, uh, next few years. Now for everyone's favorite, reading REITs. The reason we dive into real estate investment trusts every single week is because they are a very good indicator of the market's opinion on where we are with some very specific aspect of that real estate uh, sector. So now we're talking about net lease REITs. We have been doing a ridiculous amount of net lease opportunities here at Hamilton, uh, which is my investment development company. I guess it's because we've been talking about them a whole lot, but we've got investors from all over the country calling us, helping them place capital into these types of deals. And it's, 
it's not just us. It's a trend that people are starting to move towards because of the pandemic. People are very interested in these net lease investments. So um, this article is from Seeking Alpha, Net Lease REITs, Back to Business. Back to business as usual for net lease REITs, which endured punishing declines early in the pandemic before ultimately exhibiting impressive resilience in the face of stiff macroeconomic headwinds. If you think about it, net lease deals are pretty well positioned to weather something like a pandemic pretty well, right? I mean, you know, look at the, the fast food. Let's just say fast food. I mean, one, they have a standalone location, right? So, like, you don't have to worry about interaction with other tenants or whatever. Uh, they also have the ability to serve food completely remotely without, you know, any customer interaction. And they're typically very, you know, highly credited uh, entities. So, they're not going to be able to just walk away and file for bankruptcy and not worry about all of these leases. They're going to have to keep paying. So, of course, they did really well. Acquisition field growth, the bread and butter of the sector, has kicked back into gear, underscored by Realty Income's massive acquisition of Verite uh, as the animal spirits come alive. Despite their heavy retail and restaurant exposure, net lease REITs, with some exceptions, fared far better than their retail REIT peers, with rent collection normalizing by late 20. Earnings results and commentary were refreshingly normal as these REITs are again on the offensive. Net lease REITs, which are 7% of the real estate index, accounted for 35% of total REIT net acquisitions. More corporate bond-like than any other REIT sector, rising interest rates and inflation threatened to spoil the party. Potential tax code changes to 1031 exchange rules introduced long-term uncertainty but could catalyze a near-term surge in acquisitions. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's absolutely true. There are a lot of people that are that are afraid of the 1031 exchange going away, and so they are selling and moving that money now, so that they don't have to worry about any changes to it in the future. Which is interesting. I am of the opinion that 1031 exchanges are not going anywhere because uh, you know one thing that politicians are not going to do is punish themselves, and a lot of them have made a lot of money in real estate. Um, uh, it's it's sad but true. I mean, they're going to do something that benefits them. That's politics. It's just politics 101. I have a hard time seeing the 1031 exchange going away. So, you know, look, if it does, then we'll get back into what we were talking about earlier with, you know, people's not selling as much and that'll cause even more issues with the economy. But um, that's uh, that's my take on it. Andy, were there any specific charts that you wanted us to dive into while we were looking through this? Yes, there were a couple of them, Kyle. Okay. The first one is the net lease REITs 101. I think this is a good explanation here of why these net lease REITs exist. Because there are obviously, when we're getting into the world of REITs, we're competing with the world of private equity, right? The Blackstones and KKRs, Carlaw groups of the world. And one of the key things about these net lease REITs, you can kind of see their business model on the left. They essentially issue stock at a premium to their net asset value. They buy some more triple net properties. They capture the investment spread, which is the spread of the return on investment they get, usually the cap rate, measured as the cap rate, over their loan payment, right? That's the spread that they're getting. And reinvest the cash flow. They're creating more shareholder value. Because they do that, all of a sudden, your price goes up, 
and that's above shareholder uh, net asset value, that means you can issue more shares and still have the value be higher than your net asset value. And you can keep making more money, rinse and repeat, right? So that's why these companies acquire and choose to go through a public route of these triple net uh, REITs. And we see the investment characteristics. You're going to have high dividend. It's mostly focused on you just gaining your cash flow back, right? It has low economic sensitivity, but the contrast to that is that it's not going to grow in price very much because as you said, right there, they're going to reinvest the proceeds or issue more stock. Usually your price growth is not going to be that high and your interest rate sensitivity is also very high. If interest rates go up, then your development spread or your real estate investment spread goes down, right? Because then all of a sudden you need to have higher incomes on your properties to be above your interest rate on your loan, right? The easy way to understand that if you have what is a cap rate of 6% and you have a debt interest rate of 4%, you have a 2% spread right there, right? And you're making 2% of the money and the more money you can place, you're essentially just getting free money as long as you can know that you're going to sell your building for more value at the end. That's the that's the big caveat there. But in general, that's what you look for and what investors look for on these stabilized properties is to have a large spread of their the money they were getting returned over their debt. A couple of the other charts I want to highlight here, going down a little bit more, Tyler, there is a chart that is about halfway through, let's see, on the year-to-date performance. Do you see that one? Yes, right there. Right there. Is it this one? Okay. Yes. Yep. The net lease REITs, year-to-date, all REITs are essentially up except except for prison REITs. <laughs> um and we've we've talked about that before but <laughs> yeah net, net lease rates are doing well considering the fact that their price gains don't go up very high so the fact that they are yeah. seeing a significant price gain here that means they're doing they're in the realm of student housing and healthcare, and those have been a couple of the categories that we've covered here that have been really really stable actually performed really well during the pandemic. One of yeah, the other if you ones think I about wanted... it, if you look at some of these other ones that are on here, I mean, they're far riskier uh, or have the ability to be far riskier. I mean, net lease investments are relatively, you know, I, I would say they would have relatively less risk than most of these other investments just because of the credit opportunity of the tenants guaranteeing the leases. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a pretty significant thing to take into account. 13.4% is good on its own. If you compare it to some of these other REITs, it's going to look like it's performing far, far less. But for what you're getting, how secure of an asset it is, that's a really good return. Absolutely. And if we go down, let's see, one, two, three charts to where we see the average yield, five-year dividend growth, payout ratio, net lease is right at the top of your average yield for a REIT. So as an investment where you're just trying to get cash flow, I mean, if you're getting a 4.4% average yield, that's not too far away from 
what you would be getting if you're investing in a net lease property just outright. And the what you're paying for here, it's it's it is, you know, a couple hundred basis points lower, which makes a big difference. But what you're paying for is the security, the fact that somebody else is managing everything, the fact that you can literally buy it in five seconds just by going on a stock trading platform. That's what you're paying for. But to get a 4.4% return in cash flow plus some amount of capital gains percentage per year, it's not a bad play to be in either if you need that cash flow right now. One of the other I want, I'll pull out two more charts here because I think they're very interesting. Um, there's a chart underneath the section that says retail headwinds become tailwinds. It's the retail heat, heat map, sales heat map. Next one. Right there. This one. I thought this one, this, this map was pretty cool. Uh, just seeing, you know, the sales year over year are up in every, every, every category. And it's actually even easier to see on the next one. I think that was, it will be even easier to see where you see how we had a huge plunge in restaurants and movie theaters. But part of the reason why these net lease REITs are doing good, I mean, look at auto parts, grocery and pharmacy. They actually have been doing better than they ever have been because of increased demand during the pandemic. So. The only sectors that are doing poorly are the movie theaters and restaurants. And restaurants on their way back, I'm not as sure about movie theaters, although the AMC stock, you know, mania is <laughs> wrong a little bit. But uh, we, I mean, I think, Tyler, both you and I, we're so bullish on, on restaurants coming back. I don't think yeah. that's going to be a problem going forward. Well, look at that. I mean, you could see that restaurants and grocery are running exact opposite, right? Well, while restaurants are tanking, grocery was going up, and now restaurants are going back up, grocery is coming down. So uh, restaurants are going to make their way back up. Grocery will probably end up stabilizing because, I mean, hell, if you use Nashville as a canary in the coal mine, every I tried to go out uh, Friday night for dinner. No, it was Saturday night. Saturday night for dinner. And you couldn't get a table anywhere. It was over an hour wait every single place that we went. We finally ended up just, I, I don't know how I found a spot, but um, it was ridiculous. I've, I haven't seen it like that in forever, and it, it was great to see. I mean, people were ready to get back out and have experiences. We were talking about that uh, with retail and with shopping malls. It's about experiences now, and you just don't get an experience out of cooking at home. In fact, in my opinion, it's a negative experience because then you got to clean up, and it takes an hour to cook, and – Whatever. <laughs> All right, Andy, what do you got for us on this week's wild card? Well, as always, everybody, thank you for sticking around to the end of the Commercial Real Estate Investors Weekly Podcast. We like to bring to you guys the most up-to-date news and analysis that we possibly can for the commercial real estate sector. We always end off every single week talking about a topic I pick, something that's cool in the real estate sector that we want to share with you guys. And what we're going to be talking about today is energy efficient homes, especially net zero homes. And this is something that if you guys are not familiar with, you're about to get a lot more familiar with over the next five to 10 years, they're going to start to become everywhere. So what are these net zero energy homes? 
this is an article from CNBC that says in California, most new homes and multifamily residential buildings up to three story high will include solar rooftop panels beginning in 2020, which was last year, by the way. Net zero energy homes can produce as much energy as they consume and are built to optimize energy efficiency through airtight construction of roofs, walls, windows, and foundations. The U.S. has an estimated 5,000 net zero energy single family homes today. California could add 100,000 a year. And that's based on how many homes California builds. So in, in summary, what this article is saying is that California passed a law. All of their new residential construction starting last year has to be net zero energy ready, which just essentially means your solar panel, you have solar panels on your roof, right? And you have such a strong performing energy efficient house that all of your electricity is just produced by your house. You don't pay any utility bills to anybody else on electricity because the house is so efficient and you have solar panels. Pretty cool. What's even more interesting is the fact that California legalized. Because they legalized that, all of a sudden there's going to be a huge amount of investment. They said we're going from, we had 5,000 total. If home building had stayed at the level that it had been previously without the whole COVID restriction, we would have had 100,000 zero net energy homes built in California last year by itself. That's going to start coming to the rest of the country, especially as we, Tyler, we covered earlier in the show, as we see these alternative construction methods start to become more and more popular because of the rising lumber prices, right? A lot of these alternative construction methods have traditionally been more expensive, but also they're usually either thicker walls or they're made of concrete or they have a lot more insulation. It just makes your house more efficient. The thing is now, because there is government mandate here, there's going to be a lot more technology and a lot more investment in figuring out these zero net energy homes from one end. And from the other end, there's now this market factor of the fact that construction prices are becoming incredibly high. So these houses, these energy efficient houses are just going to become more and more the rage over time. And we wanted to show you guys a report that me and my team actually put together about energy efficient homes at Hamilton. One of the things we do is try to put together research reports for you guys. And this is going to be going up on our blog at tylercobble.com where you can get access and download this report actually so that you can get a little bit more understanding of what it might mean to you as a potential real estate investor and why you should be trying to figure out and stay on the cutting edge of this is that these zero net energy homes, they're going to keep coming, right? And so just like we said before, we're in this article, we're talking about passive and net zero energy homes and why they're important. Average annual electricity costs in the US can be about $2,500 and they're only going to continue going up, right? With problems with the grid we've seen in California or Texas or wherever, those prices are only going to go up. If you saw pictures of the Texas winter storm. There were people with the Tesla solar wall and solar panels during that winter storm who had electricity for weeks 
while everybody else's power went out, right? That's the type of advantage that not only in terms of cost savings that you can have, but in terms of making your home less reliant on the energy grid, right? So this is not only good for the environment of being more efficient, but it's also good for a homeowner. And when something is good for a homeowner and you can translate that into direct value for them, something they can see, touch and feel and understand that, oh, I get it. People are willing to pay more for it if they know they're going to be getting something more valuable. So some of the key statistics is that many people obviously value energy efficiency. These homes can save the vast majority of your energy bill and they often sell up to 30% more than a median comparable home. So they're engineered to improve the quality of life and re reduce the environmental impact of housing. And one of the cool things is that there's been lots of studies done where we've seen houses selling for 9.5% more than the median, even in some markets, 32% of the median. Other studies, which were on a range of high-performance homes, showed at least 35 to 9% more than the median, right? This is something that's going to be happening more and more and more across the country. If it's happening in California, they kind of thankfully for the rest of us, their builders are going to have to bear the cost of figuring out all the optimizations and all the efficiencies and all the new technologies. So if you can start getting into this now in other states where it's not government regulated, but likely at some point over the next 10, 15 years, it will be, you're gonna have a massive advantage over the other people in your space. And you can kind of let the Californians figure out all the problems first ahead of you. So that's one of the one of the nice things about, about them taking care of it for us, Tyler. But what I really wanted to bring up here is that this is where the future of these houses are going. We're going to have more and more importance placed on environmentally sustainable homes. But that's not important just for helping the environment, but it's important for helping the homeowner. And if it's important for helping the homeowner, that means we as investors can capture and create more value for them and for us. It really is a win-win situation when you can figure out the model and you can figure out how to push that forward. And that's why here at Hamilton, we put together this report for you all we're actually trying to do that. And so we'll have more information coming up about that soon, likely. But this is something that I think everybody should be very aware of. Thanks for that, Andy. Let me figure out how to get me back on the screen. That was awesome. I mean, you know, we've been talking about how uh, I mean, with lumber on the rise, uh, alternative construction methods are inevitable, in my opinion. And the great thing about these alternative construction methods is that it's very easy to come off uh, with a net zero type of project or a zero energy or a uh, you know passive home. I mean, to me, that's really exciting because one, it's far more envir environmentally sustainable to be developing projects like that anyway. Um, so it, it's interesting that it took a pandemic to kind of to, to, kind of spark that and keep it coming. But yeah, we'll have that research report up on uh, on the website here eventually um, at tylercobble.com under the blog. Just look for, um, I would imagine, type in net zero or something like that. It'll, it'll pop up. 
But uh, Andy, thanks again for this week's wild card. That was great. Uh, thank you guys for joining us on this week's episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update. As always, we're coming at you live every Monday, 5.30 p.m. Central Standard. Feel free to join in and ask your questions. If you have any questions about whether some, it's something we're talking about or just a you know some topic uh, that you're interested in, we are here to, uh, to, to discuss that with you. Uh, we'll see you guys next week.